I'd like you to turn to Judges chapter 16. And let me just tell you up front, it's okay if you have to look in the table of contents. It's one of those books that are a little bit more difficult to, to find. While you're turning there, what, what is better than a superhero? I mean, we love our superheroes, don't we? We go to the movies, we see the X-Men, uh, the, the Hulk, and Superman, and Batman. And you know, I remember reading about these as a kid when, in comic books. And I'll date myself here, but the first comic book I bought was 25 cents. And it was like all the money in the world. But we love superheroes, and we love this idea of people with abnormal capabilities and special talents and so on and so forth. And i got to tell you something. Our, our fascination with, with superheroes is kind of anchored in ancient literature. I mean, the, the Greeks had their mythologies, the Romans had their gods, and, and the Bible has superheroes too. And, and the great thing about the ones in the Bible is that they're not made up. Uh, they're not mythological. They're not... They're not some concoction of man. They, they come straight from the Word of God. And one of the great superheroes in the Bible is a sort of familiar with all of us about Samson and Samson and Delilah. And the popular notion of Samson is, you know, I, I grew up with this Sunday school idea of who Samson was. And he was just this great guy that got subjugated by the Philistines and got revenge on him and everything. And, and I thought, gosh, you know, someday I'd like to grow up and be strong like Samson and, and you know, have that hair that he had and all that stuff. But I got to tell you something. Scripture does not portray this man as much of a hero. And when we start looking at his life, when we start looking at the things that he actually did, we find out he's far less than a hero. Maybe he's just the opposite. Uh, I don't know if you remember in the 70s, after all that optimism of the 60s and we're going to the moon and all this stuff, in the 70s we had the rise of what they called the anti-hero. And you had these movies where the good guy wasn't really so good. And you kind of rooted for him anyway because the bad guys he was fighting, about, were fighting against were far worse than he was. Well, Samson's a little bit of an anti-hero. And we wouldn't know that unless we look closely at how he lived. Now, there, there are similarities, and I've heard probably a dozen sermons linking Samson to Christ. And there are certainly some similarities in Samson's life that would point towards Christ, but we would do, be mistaken if we began to associate Samson too closely with Jesus Christ. So some of the things that happen in Samson's life are God's mile markers. There are signs on the side of the road saying, hey, look at this. There's something important going on here. But we don't want to link all of the details. Samson is not a type of Christ. He's not typological of Jesus Christ. So we have to be careful how far we draw that analogy. Samson's story starts in Judges chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we find that Israel is in captivity again this time to the Philistines. They've been in captivity for 40 years. Now, that's the first sign on the side of the road that we see that we need to pay attention to what's going on here. There's nothing magical about 40, but we see patterns of 40 in the Scripture, 40 days, 40 years. There's cycles, and it's just God saying, watch this closely. There's something going on. The Hebrews had this history of being 
in captivity, of calling out to God, of God rescuing them, of them praising God, and then them turning their back on God and going back into captivity again, and the pattern starts over again. So here we are. This time they're, they're subjugated by the Philistines. And there's a, there's a guy named Manoah who's married. We don't know his wife's name, but we do know that his wife is barren. She's unable to have a child. Now, here's another signpost. There's something important going on. We know of another woman in Scripture prior to this. It was barren and was going to have a child, and that would be Abram's wife, Sarai. So this woman is visited by a man of God. We don't know if this is an angel. We don't know if it's a pre-incarnate Christ. What we do know is that somebody really important has a message for this woman, and the angel, the, the man of God, tells her, no, no wine or strong drink. And we hear echoes of the, the visitation on Elizabeth prior to the birth of uh, John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. And he says there, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. That's in verse 7 of 13. Those are exactly the same words that were spoken to Mary in Luke 2. Again, this is a shadow of something that's going to happen. It's a, a, a little preview of how God does things. And this woman gets his visitation. There's some discussion with the, the husband. The husband hears from the angel. Everything's going along fine. And Samson is born. And it says, and the young man grew. So again, we have a parallel to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 to Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 2. And the, the visitor, the man of God, told the woman to to subject her baby to a Nazarite vow. Now, this is important if we're going to understand who Samson is, what this Nazarite vow is. And the vow had three elements to it. Number one, you would never touch anything dead. Number two, there would be no strong drink ever in your life. And number three, no razor would touch your head. So the hair would never be cut. So the young boy is grown. He's under the Nazarite vow. And in Judges 14, he marries a Philistine. Now, we need to understand what's happening here because this is contrary to everything the Jews had been taught. They had been told not to intermarry with uh, non-Jewish people, with unsaved people, with pagan people. The Jews at this point are oppressed by the Philistines, and Samson goes and marries one. It's against his mother and father's wishes. It's against the law. Uh, but Samson marries this woman, and we find out in chapter 14, verse 4, that this is from the Lord. Now, we've got to be really careful with this, because when we read that, we think immediately that somehow God is endorsing this disobedience to what he's told his people to do. But in actuality, what we see is we see God moving in Samson's life. Now, the baby has been charged with beginning to deliver God's people. And so what we should read when, when it says that this, this marriage is from the Lord is that it is part of God's plan to deliver his people. Not that it's a good thing. And as we'll see as, as the story unfolds, it's not a very good thing. So God is working in life of Samson, and here's what you need to see, despite the fact that he is disobedient to what God has told him to do. So God is moving. You know, the parents 
It's kind of interesting when, when you look at it closely, if you take a look at 14 later on. The parents go, why would you do this and marry this uncircumcised woman? And so we take that to mean that why would you do this and marry this non-Jewish woman, okay? But in actuality, that region in Canaan had a number of tribes and a number of kingdoms that practiced circumcision. And what the parents are really saying there is, don't you know that the Philistines are oppressing us? Why are you marrying one of them? Why do you marry people more like us? They're not necessarily saying you need to find a new, good Jewish girl and settle down. So the parents are kind of struggling with everything as well, and they've been under oppression for 40 years, and everybody's drifting away from God, and God is moving in the life of Israel and in the life of Samson and Manoah and his wife and moving towards the deliverance of his people, but everybody's struggling with the situation. So the next thing we see in Samson is he comes upon a lion, and he kills him with his bare hands. I don't know how many of you have fought with lions in your life, but I would imagine if, we, if I knew of anybody that did, I would have gone to their funeral at some point. Samson encounters this lion. It's a giant, incredibly strong beast, and he literally tears the lion to pieces. And we see that he does this under the power of the Spirit of the Lord. So there's something going on with Samson. Even though he's kind of out there on the edge, God is working in his life. His power is manifesting itself in Samson's life. And Samson leaves. He comes back a couple days later. And he eats honey out of the carcass of the lion. Now, this is the first vow of the Nazarites that he breaks because a Nazarite is not supposed to touch anything dead. So he scoops the honey out, and, and so he compounds that by taking the honey to his parents, not necessarily telling them that it came from a carcass of a lion, and he gives it to them to eat, and he causes his parents to sin as well. Well, the wife that he married turns out to be treacherous. Here's an insight into Samson's perspective on himself and God. He married this woman because she seemed right in his eyes. It didn't really matter what God had said. Samson had a feeling. He had a little flutter in the stomach. He said, this feels right to me. I, you know, I love Debbie Boone, uh, but I, I, I regret when she did, you are the light of my life. How could it be so wrong if it feels so right? This is what Samson is saying. Samson's singing light of my life to this, <laughs> to this woman. How can it be so wrong if it feels so right? So Samson is a little bit, maybe a lot, self-consumed and self-centered. He's going to go out. He's going to get what he wants. And here's the problem with Samson. This is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges starts out with Israel doing what seems right in her own eyes. And it ends with this being a time where Israel did what they saw right in their own eyes. So this self-centeredness is going to prove to be Samson's downfall, and it's going to prove to be Israel's downfall as well. Now, we move to Judges 15. Samson's father-in-law, while he's away, gives his wife to his friend, and Samson gets absolutely incensed with this. And the next kind of superhuman feat he does is he captures 300 foxes. Anybody ever gone fox hunting? Raise your hand. Anybody ever gone squirrel hunting? Raise your hand. Okay, foxes are faster than squirrels. <laughs> Samson catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, 
puts a torch in, the tail, in their tails and sends them out into the Philistine crops. And the crops are absolutely decimated. It's a disaster for the Philistines. And Samson has, watch this, he has exacted his vengeance upon his enemies. This is all about Samson getting back at them. Well, the Philistines, in turn, capture Samson's wife and his father-in-law, and they burn them. And then they go looking for Samson. And the Judeans... Samson's own people go to Samson and go, look, we need to tie you up and give you to the Philistines. You're bringing all this trouble down upon us, and we're just hoping you'll cooperate on us. We've heard these stories about tearing a lion apart and catching 300 foxes and everything. Can we do this to you? And Samson says, well, if you promise not to hurt me, you can do it. So there's no, there's no concept of suffering in Samson's life. I'll, I'll do this for, for my people. The people that God has said that I will begin to deliver. I will do this for you if you promise not to hurt me. So you see these little hints of Samson's incredible self-centeredness rising to the surface. He agrees to do it. The Philistines turn him over. And and when that happens, the Spirit of the Lord once again, in spite of everything that's been going on, in spite of Samson's self-centeredness, in spite of his, his anger and his vengeance, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and the bindings melt like butter. Then he, he grabs the jawbone of a donkey and slays a thousand of the Philistines. Now, he didn't go into their village at night while they were sleeping and did this. This is a thousand soldiers he's in a fight with. I mean, you talk about superhero scenes, okay? He does this by the Spirit of the Lord. You know, we've seen God's people, God's leaders, David, and, and we will see David eventually, uh, have a victory and write a song about what's going on and, and giving glory to the Lord and everything. And, and Samson does the same thing. Samson writes a song about his victory. And the problem with the song is the song is all about Samson. Again, if we're not looking at this closely, this could get right by us. But it, the song is, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with a jawbone of donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. There's no recognition that maybe God was involved in this somewhere. I did this with the jawbone of a donkey. And they named the place after him. So this is the leader. This is the one who will begin to deliver the Jewish people from their oppression of the Philistines. Then in Judges 16, Samson goes and visits a prostitute in Gaza, a Philistine woman, deep in the heart of the Philistine area. And, you know, the Philistines find out he's there and they're making plans to capture him. And Samson, again, under the power of the Spirit, goes out to the village gate and picks up the doors of the village gate. Now, I might be able to pick up that door over there, okay? But these were two doors that when they swung open were, were wide enough to let, allow two chariots in. The doors weighed somewhere around 500 pounds each. Samson picks him up and heads towards Mount Hebron. He might not have gone all the way there, 
but he went in that direction. He probably went to a hill outside of the village so that people could see that he's standing there with the village doors and the village is unprotected. And what we need to see in this is, again, Samson is totally self-centered. When he wants something, he goes and he gets it. He doesn't care what he has to pay. He doesn't care what it looks like to the people around him. He doesn't care about his responsibilities to be a leader of the people. All he cares about is what he wants, and he violates every rule in doing it. And then, and then continually points to himself as some kind of victor. Then he meets Delilah. Delilah is quite beautiful. And the Philistines talk Delilah into seducing Samson and finding out what his weakness is. And they pay her uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. It's somewhere around $7,000 in today's money. And her job is to find out Samson's source of his great strength. And she does, but she's not successful. She, she tries four times before she finds any success. And the first try, she kind of goes to him and says, well, I know you love me, but if you really love me, you tell me these secrets. What is the secret of your strength? And he says, if they tie my hands with seven fresh bowstrings, then I'll lose my strength. And he's playing with her. He knows that this isn't going to work. And, and of course, you know, Delilah waits for the right point. She ties him up. And once he's tied up, she goes, oh, Samson, look, the Philistines are coming. And this has all been prearranged. And the Philistines storm, storm in. And Samson breaks the bonds under the power of the Spirit again. And it's not, it's not a good ending for the Philistines. So she goes back to him. And now she's upset. I thought you loved me. I thought I was important to you. You lied to me. How can we have these things between us? Tell me the source of your strength. And so Samson plays with her again, and his arrogance rises to the surface. He feels superior to her. He feels that he can tell her foolish things and that she'll believe him. And he feels also that no matter what she does, if he gets in trouble, he can just beat up everybody around him. Maybe he'll pick up another jawbone of a donkey. Maybe he'll just tear them apart. So he says, tie me with these unused ropes. And, and the same thing happens. And, and once he's tied up, she shouts, look out, the Philistines are coming. And Samson breaks the ropes. And, and again, a bad end for the Philistines. So she goes to him a third time. And she says, Samson, you just don't trust me. Yeah, I thought, I thought we had something. I thought we had true love. And if, if we do have true love, why would you lie to me? You're making me look like a fool. And it doesn't seem to occur to Samson that the way she looks like a fool is every time she calls the Philistines to come in and beat him up, that he, he beats them up. Samson is, is, is full on in his arrogance. And so he says, oh, here's the secret of my strength. And we find out his hair is long and is arranged into seven locks, seven braids. And he says, if you weave the seven locks of my hair together, then I will lose my strength. Now, this was complicated because they had to bring in a loom to make this happen. So she waits till Samson goes to sleep. And I'm not sure how he was so deeply asleep that he didn't hear people coming in with a loom and weaving his hair together. It was a complicated process. 
And of course, as soon as it's done, she goes, oh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he jumps up and the loom falls apart and he takes out the Philistines again. So now Delilah's really upset and Samson's on a full roll. So in Judges 16, 16, it says, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. She nagged him. She ran him into the ground. And on the fourth try, there was some success. He said, you know what? The secret of my strength is in my hair. Samson's got magic hair. She believes him, waits till he falls asleep. They come in and shave his head. And this time when she shouts, the Philistines are upon you. Samson says, no problem. I'll just get up and do what I've done every other time. And he's absolutely powerless against them. Verse 20, Philistines are upon you. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And Samson breaks the last of his Nazarite vows. Allows somebody to put a razor to his head. And the Lord was not with him. Then we pick up in Judges 16.23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. So we find out this isn't just a contest between Samson and the Philistines. It's a contest between Dagon and the one true God. Verse 24, and when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, now this means that they had a party, and generally when you hear that hearts are merry in the Old Testament, it means that they've had a fair degree of wine. When their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. He made them, they made him stand between the pillars. Now, what they did with Samson was they put him in prison. They gouged his eyes out, and they put him to threshing grain. And it, it, this would have been a large stone uh, that somebody would push over the grain to flatten it. Samson's totally humiliated. He can't see. He'll never see again. And now, now they want to bring him out as a symbol of the one true God and how their God had defeated this man's God. So Samson's not only humiliated, but God's reputation is on the line. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, all the lords of the Philistines were there. The entire government of the Philistines were in this house. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So all the leadership of the Philistines is there, and they're there making fun of him. And Samson called to the Lord. Watch this. Samson called to the Lord. It's the first indication in the entire narrative that we've ever heard of Samson praying. He's taking everything for granted. 
He believed that God would always be with him. He allowed himself to believe that whatever he did, God would be with him and he would have this strength. And, and the real problem was this. Samson believed it was his strength. Samson didn't have an iota, didn't have an inkling that his strength was coming from God. But now that he's standing there blind and in front of 3,000 of his oppressors who are all jeering at him and making fun, he realizes he doesn't have any strength at all. So he calls out to God. He's had God interact with his life. He's had God bless him in a mighty way. Maybe Samson's getting an an indication that that there's something beyond him in all this. Maybe there's a bigger story. Because they're not just making fun of Samson. They're making fun of Samson's God. And he says this. He says, Oh, Lord God. And when you get into language, it's kind of interesting. Because the first time he uses the word God, it is Adonai Yahweh. So he recognizes the God of Israel. But watch this. He's hedging his bets just a little bit as well. So he's not completely there. He knows he's in trouble, but he's not completely there. Can we, can we relate to that? Sometimes we know we're in trouble, and we want to trust God, but we don't completely trust him. So we craft our prayers. We craft our prayers in such a fashion that that maybe we can make God understand what we want him to do. So he calls out to Adonai Yahweh. Please remember me. Samson doesn't think that God has forgotten him. Okay? When we see God remembering things in Scripture, we have to understand that it means that God is taking particular notice of. And so Samson says, please take particular notice of me and please strengthen me only this once, O God. And the second time he uses the word God is Elohim, which is fairly generic and a a word that the Philistines would have recognized in how they label their gods. Elohim, multiple gods. So just a slight hedge here. He asked for the strength this one time that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. You know, it's pretty incredible he calls out to God. But look at the prayer. Five pronouns in there are Samson. The prayer is self-centered. He's a deliverer of the people. He's a judge of the people. He's been judged for 20 years. That shows up in the narrative. He's the leader of the people. He's responsible for them. He's spiritually responsible for them. And in the end, what he wants is not redemption of his people, not deliverance of his people. He wants vengeance for them taking his eye. He wants retribution. That's not a very good prayer. But I'll tell you this one thing about this prayer that redeems the whole situation. Samson now knows where his power comes from. Samson has come to the full realization that he is absolutely without power if God is not with him. So as many faults as Samson has, as many failings as he has, he's learning more and more about God. And despite his failings, 
despite his weaknesses, despite his, his self-centeredness, God has made a promise that Samson will begin to deliver his people. Here's the point of the story. It's not about what Samson does. It's about what God does in and through Samson. Do you understand that? It's not about what Samson does. It's about what God does in and through Samson. Plug that into your own life. It's not about what you and I do. It's about what God does in and through us. We have the power of the living God residing in us. And when our focus is upon Him, and when we are a witness to the lost world, Samson's standing in front of the Philistines, 3,000 of their most powerful leaders, and he calls upon God to give him strength. And what does God do? He gives him the strength. He pushes on the pillars, and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And the Philistines are thrown into complete disarray. They have no leaders. And the beginning of God's deliverance of his people starts right there. God was true to his promise, not because Samson was a superhero, but because God gives strength. He does that for us. He does that for us. Even even if our prayers are self-centered. Now listen, this doesn't give us license to do the things Samson did. The other thing we need to see in Samson's story is that Samson paid the consequences for his bad decisions. I don't think he enjoyed suffering, but I don't think at first he imagined that suffering would be part of his walk. But he made some really bad decisions. I mean, he put himself in a place that he shouldn't have been in. He's with Delilah. She's a Philistine. Delilah showed him three times that she was unfaithful and trying to get him killed, and he was so arrogant he thought it could just overcome it. Ends up with his eyes gouged out and threshing grain like an oxen. So what's better? A superhero? Somebody with superhuman capabilities? Or somebody who's weak? Somebody who fails, but has the power of God functioning in them? I'll take the second part of that story. Because I'll tell you something, I'm never going to be a superhero. And I'm familiar with failure and weakness. And I trust that God can continue to work his promises out in me the same way he did in Samson. So our lesson is that we may be imperfect. We may stumble from time to time. We may drop the ball. But God can still use us. When we turn to him and cry out to him and understand that he's our strength, that he's our deliverance, that he's the only power we have in our lives, God is faithful and true to that. So I like that. Good lesson, isn't it? Let's go a little bit deeper. Because God's trying to show us a couple things here about his plan of redemption and how he's going to ultimately deliver his people in perfection. Now, the story of Samson is filled with imperfection. It's filled with, with bad decisions. But there are a couple things we see here, and I, I love Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon likens Samson's seven locks of his hair to the prayers of the church. And I think it's a beautiful image because 
the, the prayers of the church, when the church is moving in unity, when the church is working together, when we are actually realizing the fact that we are better together, God's power runs through our church. Amen? So when we're, when we're thinking as one, when we're working as one, when we're out there witnessing to the lost, when we're down at the shelter, when we're sharing the gospel, when we're coming together like this on Sunday morning, when we are praying together, God's power inhabits those prayers. As long as we hang together and as long as we're one, shave everything off, lose contact with each other, and the power goes away. We can do so much more working together than we can on our own. I love Spurgeon on this. I thought he stretched it a bit, but I really like it. Here's the other thing. Samson stands in front of the leaders of of the oppressors of his people, and he asks the guy who's with him to put his hands on the two foundational pillars of Philistia. And when he pushes what is up above, comes crashing down and meet what, what is below. And Samson sacrifices himself in that. And again, this is a faint echo. It's not a perfect depiction, but it's a depiction of what Jesus does on the cross. He stretches out his hands. He puts one hand on the foundation of heaven, the other hand on the foundation of earth, and brings them together. Something only Jesus Christ could do with his sacrifice on the cross. And for that, today, we give him thanks. We give him thanks for the story of Samson, an individual who was weak and failed miserably at times, but God was able to use. So I'm going to ask you to do a couple things here. I want to go back to this, this concept of the prayers of the church. I'm going to ask you to do three things, and we'll send this out to everybody so we can all be on the same page. I'm going to ask you to pray daily for our church. If you can do that, raise your hand. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Just pray, pray daily for the church. I'm going to ask you to pray daily for the lost. If you can do that, raise your hand. And I'm going to ask you to do one thing again that might be a little bit harder. I'm going to ask you to fast once a week as you pray for these things. So I realize we can't all fast for an entire day. That's good. But I'm going to mark Wednesday as a day for us to fast together and pray together. So if you, just, if you could just fast one meal and take the time you would use in preparing and eating that meal and pray for the church and pray for the lost. Pray for God to, to bless our church, to bring us together as one, to, to, to help us to walk out this charge to be messengers of the gospel. Pray for the lost that they would hear it, the people would come into the kingdom. Uh, this is about kingdom building. Somebody asked me uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, well, you know, we've been out in the community for a couple years now. Uh, is anybody showing up at church on Sunday morning? Well, a few people have, but I've got to tell you something. That's not what that's about. That's not about, okay, we gave you a cookie and we gave you some water and now you need to come to church. This is about the love of Christ out in our community. This is about sharing an unconditional message of forgiveness and redemption and salvation. And if they come to church, that's fantastic. But what we want to see them do is come into the kingdom of God. 
We're not here to build Warrington Bible Fellowship. We're here to honor his namesake. We're here for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. And we'll allow God to determine where they sit when they come in. So we're going to pray for the church. We're going to pray for the lost. And we're going to do it on Wednesdays. And it's something that we can do together and, and watch, watch what God does with our commitment to do this. Let's pray. Father, we, we give you thanks for those people in the Bible that we would view as superheroes, Father, but every time we look at them closely, they're people just like us. And we give you praise for that, Father, because if there's hope for them, then there is hope for us. We hold tightly to your promises, Father, even when, they, when it seems like it might be difficult for them to be manifested in our lives, but we hold tightly to them, Father, trusting in you, not in the things that we do. Trusting in your faithfulness, not ours. Trusting in, in your truth and not ours. And we pray that you would move among us. We pray your spirit would have his way with each one of us, Father. We ask that you anoint these prayers, Father, and bless them for your name's sake, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.